Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Feel to be joined right now by Harry Pavlidis. Harry is the Director of Technology at Baseball Prospectus and the founder of Pitch Info. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Harry Pav. Harry, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. Great to be here. I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. So my earliest baseball memories are uh, an uncle, my mother's brother-in-law, who was a Mets fan, and him talking to me about baseball and the 1969 Mets. I was born in 1971, so it was relevant history. Uh, so that was probably what started it. But I, my first Major League Baseball game that I ever went to, and I think kind of loved baseball ever since this. So I think I was interested beforehand. So I remember getting some baseball cards before this, but I saw a game and uh, it's going to make everybody feel young or, or old in April of 1979, <laughs> a double header uh, where J.R. Richard pitched, John Montefusco pitched. I saw Willie McCovey as a pinch hitter. And I kind of remembered the, the beauty of watching baseball as th- from that first memory of it. Uh, so sometime before that got me into it, but you know, my memories and love of the game go back almost 40 years now. You started watching baseball before really the analytic revolution. You were a fan as a kid and that just carried into adulthood. I did too. I actually came aboard to the Sabre as a organization and to BP and Fangraphs relatively late in life. I mean, I, I really started getting into the stuff around 2010, which means I had about 30 years of baseball loving beforehand. I'm curious what got you into the analytics side of baseball as well. It started probably shortly thereafter. Uh, <laughs> the So if we'll skip, let's jump over to hockey. So in the late 1970s, a guy named Wayne Gretzky was uh, showing up on the hockey scene. I've heard he of was, him, yeah. Yeah, he was kind of good. Pretty good at the, the puck thing. Uh, so then there was also the 1980 Miracle on Ice, and hockey was at a pretty much uh, very exciting. My earliest hockey memory was actually probably something related to Bobby Clark and his missing teeth, probably circa 1975. Um, but when those hockey events happened, somehow or another, I got a hold of Stratomatic hockey. And uh, I was all, I, even at an early age, I was very into math and numbers. Um, so it, somehow I was playing Stratomatic hockey in like 1980, 1981, and then ordered a baseball Stratomatic baseball after that. I think I probably got it for like a birthday present for like my 11th birthday or something like that. So I think Stratomatic baseball taught me the way baseball is played. And I never thought of it as it being looking at it analytically. I mean, it was just, it just kind of naturally taught you the probabilities of the game, the way that the, the, the combinations of the game, the randomness, the high variance of the game. Uh, and I, I think that is really goes all the way back to that. Uh, interest with with playing strat and this week baseball prospectus unveiled a new set of pitching metrics and that's what we're going to talk about today so let's start at the beginning tell me what you initially set out to accomplish with these new metrics and what did the results tell you well i mean generally with with uh everything that we try to publish it's like the, the objective is to help either share understanding or or um, provide information that helps either you know People develop understanding, confirm things they thought they knew, find out new things that they didn't know, and start eventually asking questions that we've never thought to ask before. But as with most things, it started with uh, 
we talk a lot about pitchers in baseball uh, for obvious reasons, and we measure a lot of what they do. Uh, but some of the most important and more interesting things that we talk about with pitching you know, are things like their command, their their way they and the way they sequence pitches. Uh, so we started with the command and, and control a- aspect of it, and these are actually pieces of data that we've we've had for quite a few years because they're the foundation for our catching framing statistics. So what what we kind of suspected for a while and took took some time for us to kind of convince first myself fully of it and then convince myself enough to start convincing some other researchers to work on it with me uh, was that the framing metric, which is basically called strikes above average, you know, which is for a lot of controls and fancy stuff, what, how many catches, how many strikes we think a catcher is, is credited, you know, partially per pitch over time. The same thing exists for pitchers. It's their, their factors in a model. You know, they have an effect on the output of the model. So while we're generally controlling for the pitcher to get to the catcher, we realize that the frameability of a pitcher, uh, which you can also call the catchability of the pitcher, uh, is a very good proxy for their command. So when we, if you think of it this way, if, if your catcher doesn't have to move around, if the catcher, if you're, if the catcher can sit quietly, uh, if he doesn't really have to have good framing skills, uh, and you can, and you can hit his target, you you have good command. <laughs> that that's that's the basic theory. Now, this is not all aspects of command. It's just some of them. I mean, there are things about how you sequence and how, where you can locate pitches. Not just that you're locating them where you want to, but that you you are capable of locating them in, in multiple quadrants of the plate and things like that. So this is just one aspect of command, but it turned out to be a pretty robust one. And we paired it with the kind of underlying statistic, the kind of predecessor for, for called strikes above average, which is the called strike probability, which is the raw number that tells you just what the probability was of pitches being called strikes. So instead of zone percentage, where it's zero or one in the zone or out of the zone, it's probabilistic to us. It's somewhere between zero and one. Some pitches have a 50% chance of being called a strike. So we, we use that called strike probability as a proxy for location in the zone. So getting the ball to the strike zone is generally thought of as control. And working the ball around the strike zone the way you want to is generally thought of as command. We, we think called strike probability talks a fair amount about control. It also tells you about approach because you'll find that the good command pitchers don't throw as many high probability strikes. They don't have to throw the ball over the middle of the plate. They don't accidentally throw the ball over the middle of the plate. So when you look at their called strike probability, it may tell you about control unless the pitcher has good command, (laughs) at which point it's probably telling you more about approach. And it's probably telling you something about both. Uh, the whole way. But, you know, at the end for us really is that command and having the quote unquote control number alongside of it, we think helps contextualize the command number and helps start to interpret it and starts to give you a sense of what the pitcher is good at. So it may not surprise you, we found guys like Kyle Hendricks, Zach Davies have very good command uh, and pitchers who you would think of as not having good command don't. Guys who are wild, throw the ball, you know, repeatedly in the wrong spots and don't 
you know, just look like they don't have complete uh, mastery of their mechanics. You know, a guy like Carlos Rodon, who's a very good pitcher, but he shows up pretty badly as being able to command the ball. So the results seem to pass the sniff test. They do seem to be stable over time. Um, like I said, they're not the whole picture. But there's some stuff that happened later in the week that we released that we released that may help with that. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the guys on the leaderboard from last year in the command category, Zach Davies, Josh Tomlin, Kyle Hendricks, Ryan Volgoson, Mike Leake, those are the guys that you wonder, how are these guys able to pitch in Major League Baseball with that stuff? And I think this metric shows it's because they have such pinpoint command. And, and you know, Hendricks is the key to all this. Um, you know, the, the one thing that that got me so motivated to do this work and to lead my team of people at BP who really did most of the work in the end uh, to do this is because Kyle Hendricks. <laughs> Kyle Hendricks screwed me up really badly. Uh, so basically you, you take great pride as an analyst in being right. Um, but in baseball, we're almost always wrong. Uh, so it's, it's important to know why you're wrong. And with Kyle Hendricks, I didn't know why I was wrong. So, you know, as I live in Chicago, I'm, I'm, I'm ostensible. I'm a Cubs fan. Uh, so people talk, ask me a lot about Cubs pitchers over, over the years. And, you know, I was right about Jeff Samarja developing into a better pitcher. Uh, I was, I was wrong about Brian Mattis that same year. And so it was kind of funny when he came to the Cubs a few years later and sucked, I was like, yeah, see, that's, that's the counterpoint to my predicting Samarja correctly. But I was telling people that I didn't think Kyle Hendricks would be for real. <laughs> I, I did not think that he would achieve what he did. And, and, and when I watched him pitch in the major leagues and then I watched him succeed in the major leagues, I made the determination that I was so wrong and it wasn't just a normal baseball wrongness. It was systemically a systemic problem. Like we are not analyzing all the things we need to be analyzing. We're not even close. Like you always know that you're not there, but Hendricks made me feel like we were super far away from having a picture of what pitchers do. So it is a kind of ironic and satisfying that he has ended up being the poster boy for kind of the two sets of metrics we released. One, he was one of the better command guys, but we also, the other part of what we released this week was this past week was the pitch tunneling, which is really where the ball is at the decision point when the hitter has to make that swing or not swing decision and using pairs of pitches, sequential pairs of pitches, understanding what the difference is at that tunnel point. And it turns out that Kyle Hendricks uses uh, kind of a column of milk, as Greg Maddox put it, approach to throwing pitches where everything's coming out of the same spot. They're not moving dramatically. They're moving enough to miss bats, but he's using his command and his deception, which comes through that tunneling, uh, to be a better to get guys out. So I feel like we moved the bar much closer to understanding pitchers to the 90% level instead of the 70% level with this information. Um, and it's not information or ideas that are completely new by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that we've quantified them and made them transparent and made them usable for researchers. And so I think we are indeed seeing what makes guys tick. And there's some a bunch of other interesting stories I can probably rattle through on these. Yeah, well, let's do that. But I'm curious, before we get into some of that stuff, how predictive the command and the control metrics are in terms of 
do you expect the top 10 on the leaderboard, say, to be there next year as well? Yeah. Yeah, we do. I mean, Russell Carlton published an article on Monday that covers the reliability of these measures. And yeah, they're, they're highly reliable. We put it this way. If you think that it, they're, they're way more reliable than things like home run, <laughs> uh, they're probably not as reliable as things like stringing, swinging strike rate, which are so purely related to the pitcher. But yes, they are highly reliable and useful predictive statistics from a baseball perspective. What do you expect the aging curve to look like with these metrics? So far, it looks like your command uh, peaks by about 30 and then starts to decline. So you get better and then you get worse. It seems to follow a pretty typical aging curve with possibly a later peak than normal. And it's interesting. You had a, a piece about Jeff Weaver as well. He's sort of on both sides of the coin here because a lot of people wondered how Jeff Weaver was able to get people out early in his career, it's because he was very good with the command and the control. But now that he's really only throwing 80 miles an hour, that doesn't seem to be as much of a difference. And he's throwing it down the middle of the plate. There seems to be a tie in with velocity here as well. Weaver is a great one. Weaver's kind of... Um... <sighs> so when we're looking at the tunnel stuff, the, the decision point stuff, we're also showing you the difference in flight time, which is how fast the ball is going. So you can get a sense of how much the pitcher changed speeds between pitches. Uh, so it's one thing to look at fastball to change up. You know, that's important. You know, I've done a lot of research on that, actually. Um, but one of the, what was more interesting to me in this data set is fastball to fastball, how guys change speeds. So Weaver is an extraordinarily interesting case. So just to provide some context, Weaver is, as far as we can tell, just about as bad as it gets in Major League Baseball right now. Uh, that his performance was practically breaking our our pitching metrics and you know showing the extreme ends of, of of performance at this level. Most guys who pitched that poorly in the major leagues this past year wouldn't stay there. So he, he so he's a problem for us at that level. Um, he really went from being able to get away with having no stuff to not getting away with it. So I think that was kind of cool is that, you know, his velocity is, has disappeared and disappeared and disappeared and just kind of completely evaporated to the point where he's throwing like a, like a division one, you know, Wednesday starter. Um, <clears throat> but his approach to pitching seemed to be working this year. It stopped working. So there were two things about his approach that were really noteworthy. One is he changes speeds on his fastball. like crazy. There's, there's like, if you sort on a, uh, flight time differential across multiple seasons to, and just isolate just the fastballs on our leaderboard, you'll just see Weaver all over the place. I mean, he just changes speeds on his fastball. So that helped. That was a big part of it. So there's this thing, oh, if you don't have good stuff, just just change speeds. Well, there was another thing that Weaver was doing, which was he showed excellent command, that he his, called, his frameability, his called strike above average rate was good. He was a good command pitcher. So he had this kind of deceptive crossfire delivery, something that we can't pick up directly at all on our metrics, but the, you know, that's one thing we know. It's deceptive delivery, you know, real good pitchability, understands how to pitch, very experienced, you know, pitcher. Uh, ability to change speeds, like that helped, you know, disrupt the timing of the hitter despite the loss of velocity. But when he lost his command, it didn't matter. It was kind of amazing was that you there's many ways to get guys out. You can get guys out having great stuff. You can have get guys out, you know, just by trying to get them hit ground balls. You can get guys out trying to you know, make them swing and miss. Uh, but there's something to be said about a guy who combines 
changing speeds, with a little bit of a deceptive delivery, with really good command, who then still has that deceptive delivery, can still change speeds, but could no longer put the ball apparently where he wanted to, and he was getting crushed. So it feels to me like that the, all these stats helped us understand we were good and bad. And there's no, it's the combinations of the metrics. It's not a high tunnel differential or a high or a low speed changing rate are good or bad. It's how they are combined and work together. Uh, things like command are, 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 I think are a little more unambiguously good or bad, but so when that, when that left him, everything left him, but he was able to find a way to combine his delivery, his slow, low hitting speed velocity and changing speeds to get away with it and make major league hitters miss. But once he was unable to hit his locations, it did not matter. I'm wondering what the difference you found between relievers and starters is between the command and the control. It would seem like the relievers would not be on the top of these leaderboards, particularly because they don't have to be. Right. I mean, I haven't done anything systemic on that, but yeah, basically that's right. Uh, the, the, there's some really, I think it's the relievers do not have to have that kind of command or control. Um, that's for sure. I think some of the more interesting stuff though is going to be on the, on the tunneling, on the sequencing stuff. Like Mariano Rivera never changed speeds. <laughs> you know, he was a human metronome. Like his, his pitch after pitch after pitch was coming at you at the same speed. Uh, then, you know, so I have to, you have to look and see, as a pitcher's developing that, you know, if they, okay. So if his stuff is good enough, if he can throw 95 and he's got a nasty hammer, you, you don't worry about too many things. Um, but you know, if the stuff is maybe 92, 91 with kind of an average slider and an okay change up, then, okay, we, we've got to figure out better ways to get guys out. And that's when you start realizing that eventually you run out of things and it's when you've run out of things and have maybe just one, where you can pre-select guys for relief. So I think it's definitely be interesting to analyze it. And, I, and we, sh- we certainly will. But I think what you said, Ross, and asking the question was the answer was, you know, they don't have to. So they're going to be put in the bullpen. It's the guys who don't have those abilities, like three of those skills, to change speeds, good command, good stuff. You know, you have to have like, you know, some of these, pull all these levers. If you can only pull one of those levers, you're in the bullpen. So, I mean, it may be, these may be things that help you identify, uh, you know, and project where a guy's going to, how long a guy's going to last, or you can look at it as he has to develop or modify this particular attribute of his skill set to be more like a pitcher who combines his other skills into getting outs. So I think that what this will show us is that a lot of these relief pitchers are one trick ponies and that starting pitchers are three to four trick ponies. And this is about to segue into a please do not vote for relief pitchers for the Cy Young Award rant. Uh, there's a reason these guys are in the bullpen. There's a reason they're only asked to throw 60 innings. There's a reason they're only asked to get three or four guys at a time and not go through an order two or three times. It's because of stuff like this. It's You just can't project a guy's performance off his performance. You have to understand how they did it and how they're putting things together. So when you look at, when you look through all this data and you look at starting pitchers and relief pitchers, you're going to see the biggest difference is it's a one trick pony versus a multiple trick pony. And that is the difference between starting pitchers and relief pitchers. Starting pitchers have more than one way to get guys out. Relief pitchers don't have to. 
So they can look really good in those short spurts and it would be absolutely impossible for them to do anything better. So when people voted for a guy like Zach Britton for Cy Young, for example, they were making a mistake. I don't care how good his numbers were in 60 innings. He could not have pitched 180. That's why he pitched 60. So don't, don't tell me he's more valuable to his team than a guy who can throw 180 even as a fourth starter. Most relief pitchers would not survive in a major league rotation. What's most interesting about these metrics to me is that it's quantifying a lot of old school lingo. Command and control interception, there's nothing new there, but being able to quantify it is. And I think that's what's relatable about a lot of these metrics as well. Right. Yeah, it's both relatable and risky because automatically you're wrong. We already know what these things are or we don't need them. But, you know, we're, we're kind of used to that at BP. Uh, <laughs> that's what we do um, is get pointed at and laughed at for doing things. But, and then eventually people realize that's worthwhile. We've definitely gotten some why like or no, this isn't all command. Like, yes, we know that. Uh, so here's, you know, but what you just said is critical is and that is the sabermetric principle is to make the information available. And to us, it's very important to make baseball knowledge and careers available to people. I mean, I have a career in baseball because pitch FX data was publicly available. So I was able to build a business which serves more than half of Major League Baseball. Uh, so, you know, in addition to working for Baseball Prospectus, Pitch Info is a, is a service that most, most teams in baseball use. Uh, so I got into this and I'm able to, you know, live <laughs> because of these opportunities provided by data. Our, our, one of our big roles at BP is to help prepare and improve the industry, mature the industry. I mean, there, we, a lot of, especially in the earlier days when baseball analytics was just coming around, a lot of people came from BP. We have something like 47 people um, working in major league teams. It's about to be 48. Just this past week, one of my developers left to go work for a team. And in a couple of weeks, one of my interns is leaving also to go work for a team. So we continue to produce and develop this talent at BP, but we also work to produce the data information that other people out there can make discoveries and do the things that are getting harder to do, which is take data that's publicly available and find new things. Uh, clarify old understandings, develop new understandings, find ways to communicate concepts, ways to predict performance, things like that. So it's incredibly fun to have all this data, but we think it's extremely important that it's public and that even though it's old and inside baseball knows this stuff, it, it's we hope that this helps kind of generate another round of fresh baseball analysis and research coming from people that we don't know who they are yet. And I think that's the critical thing is that when you're trying to build a healthy industry, which I think BP is a part of building a healthy industry, is diversifying your talent. And how do you diversify your talent? By reaching more people. Reaching And how do you reach more people? Well, as a middle-aged white guy, it's hard for me to reach more people. <laughs> um, but if I just open up all the data I possibly can, those people will find it and start working with it and have opportunities to be recognized that they probably couldn't get before. So this is to help us understand pitching. 
uh, it's to help bring people to our website. It's to help be, bring people to Fangraph's website. They're, they have this data too, and they'll be publishing it as well because um, we provide it to them. Um, but it's really the main objective here. The real big picture is to create a healthier industry uh, of baseball analysts that are going to develop into the next leaders of the industry. And then in turn, themselves develop the next generation. So that's BP's role. That's why we publish data. It's for the health of the industry. And that sounds kind of highfalutin, but that is the mission statement for my group is to provide knowledge, diversity, and training for people, Major League Baseball. And we provide it directly and we provide it indirectly simply by publishing and how we publish. I'm always fascinated by the difference between what we see publicly as consumers versus what teams look at privately. Do you think the teams already have metrics like this available to them? No. Some of them, yes. Absolutely. Some of them are absolutely doing this. I, I would say maybe a third of the league is actually calculating all these types of numbers and things. It would be, it would, it, it, it's not something that you hear about a lot. Um, so it, 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 there's a huge spread. There's going to be some teams that are way ahead of this stuff and, and, and have been doing this for years and developing their pitchers, using this data, using this information, acquiring their pitchers, using this data, using this information. And then there's others who probably haven't even thought of it. I mean, it's such it's so broad. Um, there are teams that rely heavily just on nothing more than publicly available data. Don't be fooled. There are people who don't develop their own statistics in-house. They either buy them or find them online. So I, I, there's, you know, there's such a, such a range of things. So I think this could have direct impact on some of the kind of the slower following front offices. Um, but I think for the most part, I think you, when you look at player development, all these concepts existed. So if anything, this may show people, look, if you just put these numbers that you already have in your database together, you may have some better conversations with your, you know, between the guys wearing the, the uniforms and the guys wearing the khakis, which is really important. So that's another thing is that, you know, yeah, teams may be doing this. They may not be doing it analytically. Some may be. Now they'll realize they can. Now maybe they'll, you know, they'll realize that it's it, there's a, if you put these things together this way, you can communicate them better. So that that's probably going to be happening. But I know there's a couple teams a handful of teams probably that are using this information in a more sophisticated way than we've even shown yet at BP. And do you think those teams are specifically targeting free agents or players in trade that specialize in command and control like this? Do you think that, that they see that as a potential? Um, I think they're looking more at the tunneling stuff. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of the tunneling stuff. We had mentioned command and control earlier. We've talked about tunneling a little, but tunneling is basically, when I read the piece, quantifying deception. Tell me about how you started to do that and how that came to be. Right. I mean, so this is another kind of old baseball thing, which is, uh, you know, there's a term people like to use called late break, which is physically not what happens with the notion that you can't distinguish what pitch it is until later, that the pitcher hides the ball. So there's things physically in their mechanics of delivery and cues that you pick up just from the way they wind up and re release the ball that are telling you what to swing or not swing. But Basically, there's a decision point, and there's lots of articles. We literally the the research list on this is almost 60 items long. 
um, not exaggerating, that th this there's a lot of physiology here. This is about you know how much time the brain needs to make a decision. So the idea is that basically there's a lot of caveats to this, but just rule of thumb for time being, when the ball is about like 25 feet from home plate is when the batter has to make a decision. So what we, you know, what people have been talking about and been writing articles about for a few years was that this seems to be tied, just seems to be an extra piece of the puzzle where these pitchers who keep the ball in the tunnel uh, and the, and make it hard to distinguish where the pitch is, which, what pitch type it is and what location it's going to be in. Uh, you know, so basically when and where is what pit batters are looking for. If, if you make it harder for the batter to determine when and where by having the ball closer together and for, you know, the further down the, the pipeline towards the plate it gets, the harder it is to hit. And basically, yes, <laughs> it, it, you know, there, there's, there's, it's, this is a great example of it's, there's more than one way to do it. You know, there's keep keep them close together, keep them far apart can actually be an effective strategy too. Um, but you know, basically the idea was that pitchers use deception to disrupt and they want to disrupt timing. So we wanted to put together all the numbers we possibly could think of to quantify that. So we can start looking at them. So how far, so just we take one pitch and then the pitch after it and measure these things and take their average and then average all these pairs. So basically it's literally one pitch to the next. Uh, how, you know, so at the point, you know, how far apart were the release points? How far apart were the, was the ball when it was 25 feet from home plate? Uh, how much did one pitch break after that point and how much did the other pitch break? We could use break full flight, half flight, end of flight. It doesn't matter. It's just, contextual makes sense to do it this way so that kind of quote-unquote late break which is a misnomer but we're using just the latter part of the movement uh then we're also looking at where the location of the plate was how far apart it was at the plate uh and then how far apart it was in time so basically how far apart it released how far apart at the tunnel you know when it comes out of the tunnel as it were or at the decision point and then how far apart at the plate and then the ratios between these things we also thought might be interesting and then we just publish all the numbers. To me, that my favorite ones are definitely the, you know, so far are the flight time differential because that gets, like I said earlier, uh, into changing speeds. And it's really cool to be able to look at how pitchers change speeds or don't change speeds. Uh, and it's it's cause that's something you, you can see when you're watching a game, uh, or you hear when you're watching a game. But it's really kind of fun to go back into the data and look and see quantitatively how much a pitcher's approach relies on changing speeds. Uh, for some reason, I just find that one to be pretty interesting. But we've created all these, so we've got all these numbers, we've got all these ratios. You can look at it at the pitcher level, so I can go look at what Bartolo Colon's average flight time differential is. And that's okay, That that's fine. But what's better is to go by pair, by pitch type. So I can go look at Bartolo Colon, and there's like 21 entries for Bartolo. So first pitch, fastball, second pitch, fastball, first pitch, fastball, second pitch, sinker, first pitch, fastball, second pitch, changeup. So we have rolls, roll ups of all those tunnel break timing ratios and everything for each pitch combination. So you can look at literally how many times a guy has thrown that sequence. You can look at what the, you know, the difference between those pitches were. So you get an idea of how big a gap there is between this fastball and changeup in terms of speed and movement. And then you can look at where the pitch was located at the plate and see if 
you know, the ball was really close together all the way until it got to the plate and it was, you know, pitch one was a foot away from pitch two when it only appeared to be inches away for most of the flight. So that's what that data is. And that's what that data is looking like right now. We're already working on changing it. <laughs> so um, it's we're moving it to the batter's perspective. Right now it's effectively from the catcher's perspective where these tunnel points are. That's not as important because if, uh, if I throw a fastball on a slider, as a, let's say, a, let's say I'm Chris Sale, and I throw a, a, a fastball slider combination to a right-handed hitter, um, and I throw that literally somehow I'm pitching machine, throw the literally the same two pitches to a left-handed hitter, they're going to look very different, very different. The left-handed hitter uh, in this one particular sample that we've been playing with to test out some graphing techniques is the two pitches look almost indistinguishable. But for the right-handed hitter, they're really obviously different. So what's a good tunnel and a good path and a good deception depends on the hand of the hitter. So we're going to switch everything over to that uh, and also possibly add in some pre-tunnel point information because the pit, you're going to, you know, my curveball and my fastball might be close together at the tunnel, but the curveball had a hump. So I kind of let it go up out of my hand so it can come back down to the plate. So we also want to start picking up if there's big differential cues coming earlier. So the further something is away, the harder it is to tell the difference between two things. So a, a big difference out of the hand may not be important, you know, you know as, 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 as important as it would be at the tunnel point. So we're converting everything from raw distances to visual angles, which is basically tells you how much of the, the technical things is basically the how much of your visual field is taken up by an object. Because if you look at a pen from 100 yards, it's a dot. You put that pen right in front of your face and it's taking your entire visual field. So you know, it's, that's 180 degrees when it's right at your face. It's 0 0.018 degrees when it's 100 yards away So or something like that. So you have to uh, you know, do the math. So, so we're converting everything to perspectives. We're converting... You know, batter perspective. We're converting everything to visual angles, uh, and we'll probably also get into batter specific perspective. Because batters, we know they we roughly know enough about the batter's position in the batter's box where we may be able to tailor the the tunnel numbers to the batter, which would start getting you into some really amazing stuff with matchups uh, and getting understanding hitting perhaps, and and understanding how to how to develop hitters or manage lineups or, you know, turn this on its head. It's all not just about pitching. This will turn out to be also about hitting. I think that's great because actually when I read the tunneling piece, I was thinking, wow, not only are major league pitchers just amazingly good, but hitters that have to adjust to this so fast and what hitters are seeing, the distance that they have to adjust and the time, it is amazing. So looking at it from the hitters perspective, I think that unleashes a whole new ball game. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, basically the whole notion of tunneling is looking at pitching from the hitter's perspective. So this is what we published for as a kind of a big thing, but it, it immediately we you know we knew it was an intermediate step. We weren't planning on working on this phase two stuff right away. It was originally just going to sit, but we actually started working on it already. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. We may have another release of this stuff before the season even starts. Kyle Hendricks, who was sort of the star of Pitching Week. You mentioned him a little earlier. You're there in Chicago. And this season, he got compared to Greg Maddox 
a lot. Maddox, of course, known for the pinpoint precision command and control. And you actually did a piece on this as well. When you compared Hendrix to Maddox, what did you find? That they're very similar. I mean, I think Maddox, when he came up, I think it's important. I think this is, he threw hard. Maddox threw pretty hard when he was young. And he could throw 93, 94, maybe 95. There's been claims that Hendricks can throw 95, but they're not true. Um, so he, Maddox was stronger. That's one thing. So it's a little bit unfair to completely compare them. And Greg Maddox is also Greg Maddox. Well, it turns out, despite admonishing people for comparing them, it turns out they're a lot more similar than we, we you know, once you quantify it, you start to see it. They do things differently. I mean, I mean, Kyle doesn't really throw his cut fastball anymore. He basically throws a four-seamer that's pretty straight and then a two-seamer. Maddox really liked to cut the ball. But what Hendricks does, he has a changeup which he can cut or fade, which is pretty darn amazing. So, yeah, it does turn out that they work in a very similar way, that, the, that, the, that they rely on command and that they rely on that deception that's provided by not being – not moving the ball too much by having the ball kind of have more subtle movement. So you can start it down those same trajectories. Uh, you know, so that really, I mean, he's not Greg Maddox, but it is actually fair to compare his technique to Greg Maddox. As long as we can quantify it a bit, we can't, you know, we don't, we don't have any early career Maddox data, but yeah, it, 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 there's, there's definitely a case for guys like Hendricks, Kyle Davies, Josh Tomlin, the way he stepped up and improved this year. I mean, that that's that, that that's a Maddox style of pitching where you don't throw particularly hard. You have some subtle movement. You, you, you probably have a cut fastball uh, and you never really like to throw the ball straight. But you'd never really throw anything that's like a big yakking curveball. You don't have like a, a crazy, nasty back foot slider. You just basically pound the edges of the strike zone and move it around, putting in different places, throwing different pitches. So yeah, it, it's it's now impossible not to compare Hendricks to Maddox for so many reasons. It's still not fair to, to Hendricks <laughs> to do that or Maddox to do that. But there's no doubt that you can look at the approach, the column of milk thing, where the ball isn't, it's just barely distinguishable from one pitch to the next out of where it's coming and where it may go, is absolutely a viable pitching technique. You don't have to be Greg Maddox to, to have success with it. You can actually be Josh Tomlin and have success with it. That's really interesting. The other guy that sort of mystifies all of these systems is Tom Glavin for the other reason. And there's a big difference between his overall value, looking at run prevention, if you just look at baseball references war, or if you look at his FIP, there's a big difference there. And you look at his DRA, there's even a big difference there. He's a really interesting guy. What is some of this data shown about him? Yeah, he's, to me, you know, I haven't looked at him too specifically because, it's funny you ask about Matt Glavin, because he's such an outlier. We only have late career data on him. When he may have been relying on reputation more than most people. But yeah, he's another one of those guys who, that if you look at his numbers using pitch FX data, it tells you one thing. If you look at his numbers, you know, deriving called strike rates and um, called strike above average, things like that, without pitch FX data, you sometimes get a different thing. So my answer about Glavin is, I wish we understood him better. 
I don't think, I feel like the data we have on Glavin raises more questions than it, than it answers. Because it sometimes doesn't always jive. And that's interesting because he got into the Hall of Fame on his first ballot. And when you look back at his numbers, looking back just in terms of basic run prevention and certainly his wins, you know, talk about old school, the old school numbers, he deserves to get in on his first ballot. But when you look at other metrics, he's, he confuses everyone. And I wonder if he's at a point where because he's such an outlier, do we just take the actual results of ERA and wins with him and take those for what they are? Where do you think the best starting point is for an outlier like that? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, over a long period of time, ERA does become more useful, right? Um, sure. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no question Gladwin is a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher. I mean, he did get all those guys out for all those years. <laughs> I just don't think the data I have helps me fully appreciate how he was doing it. It's, it's how he was at the end and how he was being treated by hitters and umpires at the end, as opposed to what kind of pitcher was he? So I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say throw away everything else. I would say we should, we, we should, we should keep looking because it's the places where you feel ignorant and confused or are, are usually the best places to go looking for things. Even if you don't know what the heck it is you're looking for. So two years ago, BP released a great new metric, DRA, to measure pitchers, and you've been on the cutting edge of doing pitch framing for a handful of years as well. I just want to get the overall state of DRA and the overall state of framing as we head into the 2017 season. Jonathan Judge has been incorporating pitch info data into DRA, so we have an unreleased and yet-to-be-scheduled update to that that we think is even better in terms of being both descriptive and predictive, which is really cool. Uh, so basically adding in some of these characteristics that we're talking about, but also some of the raw pitch effects information, like how far, how hard they throw and things like that has actually helped uh, DRA. So Jonathan's working on that stuff. It's, it's yet to be published, but so we think we're, you know, even further honing in. I mean, the thing about DRA, is a big thing. It's not, it's multiple models, multiple things. So there's a lot of things that we can tune and refine. Uh, and so that's going to be going on for quite some time. Then we, we, we generally don't like to update the stat too often. We probably have updated a lot more than we would have liked already. Uh, so we'll probably have an update this year, maybe two. But I think the next one will be a pretty good improvement and tighten some things up. So that's where we're at DRI. With the catching stuff, we probably... At this point, our, we're, we're overdue on getting back to game calling. So I think now that we have some, and one of the biggest problems for me was about was about sequencing. And that, that's understanding how pitchers sequence and maybe how they relate to their catcher. I think now we're starting to accumulate the data where we can start answering some of those questions. So we might start to feel better about what we're learning about framing, um, excuse me, about game calling and start to add that to the mix for catchers. I also think some of these, data points also will find their way into our framing model. So uh, some or some of the learnings about the tunnels and things like that, th th those may actually be useful for understanding the catcher a little bit better um, and understanding the pitcher a little better. Is up, obviously is what the key to understand the catcher is the pitcher. <laughs> so knowing a little more about how the pitcher is throwing his pitches and how they may be deceptive to the umpire and things like that may help us uh, better credit the catchers for their framing contributions. 
So, so basically, long story short, all this data has the potential to trickle out through most of the things we do. I think some of the most interesting stuff will end up being in Pakoda because how we project has a lot to do with how we age, how we project the aging curves, as we've talked about earlier. Also, how we create pools of comps. You will age more like the players who are like you than the players who are unlike you. These batches of pitching descriptors changes speeds, mixes, you know, close tunnel, you know, things like that. Those are probably going to go into the stew as candidates for markers of comparable, comparable pitchers. So if we can start projecting pitcher performance based not just on their stats and their age and their hand or whatever, but in terms of how they tunnel, in terms of how they change speeds, that may be, you know, pretty cool. But again, we have to, we're, we're at the point where we have the data, we've got all the stuff, and now we want to make some updates to it, make it better. Uh, so, you know, sometime later this year, we'll be getting to some of these more advanced things. So this will impact us not just this year, but I think you'll see a pretty significant impact for what we do at BP in 2018 will come from, you know, come from what we're doing now. You've been listening to Harry Pavlidis. Harry is the Director of Technology at Baseball Prospectus and the founder of Pitch Info. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Harry Pav. Harry, thanks for the extended time and for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Ross. Great to talk to you.